Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. 1 Timothy chapter 6, let's stand and read the Word of God this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're picking it up in verse 6. But for context, I want to pick it up back in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and the quarrel about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Here's our text today. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you to come, Lord, to speak into our lives. Relating to this topic of contentment and the love of money. Lord, it is an applicable text, particularly in our country. And we ask you today, Lord, to just speak into our hearts. Help us not to hear this for somebody else, Lord, but help us to hear this for ourselves this morning. So shape us, Lord. Change us, transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, before we start the exposition of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, I want to ask you a series of questions. And uh, as I ask you these questions... You don't have to respond to them, but if you lie, your nose is going to grow like Pinocchio. So I can't control that. The Lord just said, hey, Pinocchio, we know you're in here. But, but he, here's, here's the, the primary question I want to ask you. I want you to really, to really think about this for a second. I'm going to give you a second to really think about this, and I'm going to follow up the primary question with some suggestive questions to help you maybe answer that a little bit better. So here's the primary question. What if anything, could make you happier than you are right now? What, if anything, could make you happier than you are right now? So think about that. What can make you happier? If you had resources aren't an issue, nothing's an issue, you, what, what would it be that would make you happier right now? Let me ask some suggestive questions now. So considering it's Christmas time, how many of you would say, if you had just a little bit more money, you'd be a little bit happier? Anybody, if you had just a little bit more in your bank account, maybe aside from Christmas, but the reality of that, that, that cushion that we all desire, if you just had a little bit more money, you'd be a little bit happier. What about a better job? just had a little bit better job with a little bit better manager, you'd be a little bit happier. How about 
a bigger house in a better neighborhood. If you had a better house in a bigger neighborhood, would that make anyone a little happier? How about a better car? Guys, maybe something with a little bit more horsepower? Vroom, vroom, you know what I mean? Would that make you a little happier? Now, here's some sensitive ones. How about a few more children or a child? Would that make you a little happier? Or if you're single, how about a spouse? Would that make you a little happier? What would make you a little happier right now? Is there anything in the world that would make you a little bit happier? The answer to the question is yes. There is only one thing, though, that will make you a little bit happier than you are right now. And it's found in the word contentment. Contentment. You see, if you're content, you're a little bit happier. The subject doesn't matter. Whatever it is that you think you uh, might find a little bit more happy in will fail you. It will not be able to provide what it is that you're seeking out of it. But if you're content, oh, that is where you find just a little bit more happiness. Doesn't matter how much you have. If you're not content, do you know you'll never be content? I love people that say, man, if I just had a little bit more, if I had this or that, then, my, then I would do this or that. And I say, are you doing that now? No. Then you wouldn't do it then. Because our, our heart's desire has nothing to do with resources. It has to do with, um, it, it actually has to do with desire. What our, what our desire is, what is motivating us to want these things and see, that's what Paul wants to talk to us about today is that desire that will lead us uh, to things that we think will bring us happiness, but they will not. And we'll just get into this vicious cycle of wanting more and more and more, and it will never, ever satisfy. It's like going to the same well that is dry and drinking it over, trying to drink it over and over again, and it does not satisfy. And we do it over and over and over again. And that's why... It's in the Bible. It's not just, this is a personal letter to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, overseeing the church at large there, you know, multiple churches, multiple pastors. It's in a pastoral epistle, but God knows that it's something that humanity will struggle with, being content. And I would say if there's, there, there's really no better audience in the entire world right now than the audience in the United States, I think that we have a serious contentment issue. Like we're seeking and searching for the, the, whatever, something more for ourselves. And what we're going to find is that will, well, we, we already know that leaves us totally empty. Contentment is what breeds happiness. You might recall that it was J.D. Rockefeller who was asked, how much money is enough to which he replied, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. It's found in the, the, the idea of just a little bit more. Did you know how much he was worth? In, in 1916, his estimated worth was $1 billion. He was the first billionaire in the world. J.D. Rockefeller made his first billion dollars as an oil man, and he said he just needs a little bit more money. That, that just to equivalent out to what that would be in today's world, it's about $400 billion. 
That's, that's how much money this, this fella had in 1916. Pretty sure the depression didn't affect him much, except for maybe in, in, in uh, first world ways, right? You know, $1 billion. It, 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 you'll always long for just a little bit more if you don't learn to be content with what you have. No wonder Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with, great con- with contentment is great gain. The word content there in verse 6 is the Greek word oftakoria, and it means self-sufficient, but in the good sense of the word. Not in the bad sense of the word, like I, I'm prideful and self-sufficient, but meaning I have no need. And, and uh, William Barclay describes self-sufficiency as a frame of mind which was completely independent of outward things and which carried the secret of happiness within itself. It describes someone who is satisfied in mind and disposition. Commentator uh, Jeffrey B. Wilson stated that the cynic and the stoic philosophers used this word to describe the person who was unflappable, meaning they were marked with assurance and self-control. They were unmovable by outside circumstances, and they properly reacted to their environment. That's how they use the word contentment. To be content means to be satisfied and sufficient in Christ alone and to seek nothing more than you already have. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all that pertain to life and godliness. In Christ you have everything that you need. We're promised that we'll have everything we need. He is our sufficiency, 2 Corinthians 3.15. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our contentment is hidden in Christ. So if, if we just try to be content in the flesh, guess what? It, you'll never do it. Your contentment has to be, you have to be satisfied in Jesus. That's where you find true contentment. A deeper walk with God will yield more contentment. Paul gives us his own personal testimony relating to this in Philippians chapter 4. You know the story, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, key word, you can circle that, learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we all love to quote Philippians 4.13, but look at the context. The context is perseverance. The context is me being content with whatever it is that I'm dealing with because I can do all of those things, whatever those things are, in Christ. Now, I'm not saying you can't dunk a basketball in Christ, right? I can do all things in Christ, but the context of the verse, which we care about context, we care about keeping the Word of God in context, and the context of the verse means that I can deal with all my trials and my tribulations, and that I can actually be content, and I can be at peace, and I can have joy through all of those things. 
uh, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. If you're going to quote it, quote it in that context. That is how Paul meant it. Paul said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's a fascinating thing about contentment. It's not something that we just inherently get. It's something that we have to learn. That means there will be desires that you have to face. You have to suppress or, you know, get rid of. You have to cut things out of your life because they're producing something that is making you discontent. So we have to learn in whatever situation we might be to be content. Here's the promise that, that God gives us. In the same vein of, of exactly what he's talking about, Philippians 4 and down in verse 19, he goes on to say, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The context is, I'm learning to be content. I'm learning how to deal with uh, being in need and, and, being, and having lots. I'm learning how to, how to navigate through all those things. But what I can be assured, the promise that I can bank on, Paul goes on to say, is that number one, I'm going to have the strength from Christ to do it. But number two, God will provide what I need. And that's the promise there. You see, we don't trust God. That's why we become discontent and we say, God won't provide what I need, so I have to do it. That's the bad sense of the word self-sufficient. That's not what God is asking you to do. He said he is your provider. I, 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 you know, it's, it's so abnormal for us to see somebody who is waiting on God to do something. We say, well, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you, you know, you got to get off your butt and go do something about it. And maybe, actually, that's not what we need to do. Maybe we need to wait on God to do what he wants to do. There is a lesson, man, in, 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 these, in these difficult uh, circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. There's an incredible lesson if we will look for it. But if we, you know, God gives us, is God faithful to give you tests? You know, how, how easy are those tests? They're usually pretty easy, right? You just really ace right through them and you're like, no, that's why we have to retake them multiple times, right? God says, well, hey, let me give you that one over because, you know, three weeks ago you failed that. So he's, he's faithful to bring these things into our lives. He wants to teach us, listen, to be dependent on him alone, nothing else. Um, you know, and... and we, we say, well, God's given us a brain to do all these things. Of course he is. He's also given us his spirit to direct us. I think, the, I think the real issue here is not everybody responding exactly the same way. The real issue is truly seeking God and asking him what my response should be in this situation. That's ultimately what we want to get our minds to. We, we don't want to say, I assume I know what God wants to do here. Because you don't. Until you seek his face, until you ask him specifically, Lord, what do you want to do in this situation? How should I respond to my, to my, you know, to my need or this trial or whatever it is? How should I respond to this? You know what I find the Lord says to me a lot? Wait. I hate that word. Wait. Are you serious, God? Again? Come on. He said, well, dude, you, you don't get the lesson 
You, you want to move forward already. I want you to wait because I want to teach you something, but you don't want to learn it. And that's the reality. It's a lack of contentment in saying, Lord, I trust you. I know that you're going to do what you said you were going to do. You told me you'd give me the strength. You told me you supply my need. I'll wait on you. Why does Paul bring this up? Why is he bringing up this idea of being content right now? He's bringing it up because last week where we ended in verse 5 there, he's talking about false teachers and he's saying that the false teachers were imagining that godliness is a means of gain. We talked about that, what that means, that they, they were finding, um, you know, through religious means and all of these kinds of things that they could make a pretty good financial living. And so they, they, were, they, they, were, they were passing on this idea that, man, if you're not rich, something's wrong with you. Like God is not in your life if you don't have a lot, right? And didn't Jesus have to deal with the same thing with the Pharisees? They thought if your life wasn't blessed, if you were born with some ailment, paralytic or whatever, it was the sin of your parents or it's your sin. That's what puts you in these situations. And Jesus even addresses that with the paralytic that he heals. He says, it was neither his sin of his father or his mother, but that I might show you who I am in healing him. And when he said, your sins are forgiven. That blew their minds. Who can forgive sins but God? Exactly. That's the point. God came down. It was God that came down. And, um, you know, so Paul's dealing with the same idea of these guys saying, if your life's not blessed, you know, then, then you're not, um, then you're a mess. You're in sin or something. And, uh, you know, that message continues on today. We see it, you flip to TBN, you can watch that all day long if you want. The health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine, you know, of, of you know, God is, you're, you're the center of the message. And God is there to bless, the, bless you, and, and it's all about you and what, what you want, and God will make sure that you have that. That's not what the Bible says. And in fact, what, what Jesus said was, dude, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard, and you're going to suffer but I promise that it'll be worth it. I promise that it'll be worth it. You know, um, one of my favorite verses, this is off the cuff here, but one of my favorite verses is in Romans chapter eight and relating to this. And uh, it says in Romans chapter eight, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God is doing something in the midst of suffering. It's not a waste. Like he's in the midst doing something and, and we just wait on him and trust him and, and maybe you won't recognize it here in this life, but you will in the next. When you see the sufferings that you suffered and then you compare to the glory of the Lord and you go, whoa, that was easy in comparison to what I get here. That was nothing. Man, how amazing is that? Paul is addressing this, 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 this false teaching here about godliness being a means of gain. And so he utilizes those words and he starts to use godliness. What, he uses the concept of godliness and really it's all the way through the end of the chapter here, the idea of being godly and, and being content. You know, this, this kind of threads through as he moves on from verse uh, 5 into verses 6 all the way through the end of the chapter. Paul deals specifically here with the love of money. The issue with the false teachers, number one, is that their message is wrong, but also their heart is wrong. 
They have a wrong motive. Like they're, they have a insatiable love for the things of this world. And uh, so he, he, Paul says, we got to make sure we address that because that is something we will all be prone to. You know, to see the things of the world, our fleshes want to go after those things. So let's talk about what does it mean to be content? What does it mean to, to love money? And these are the things that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the title of my message is The Benefits of Contentment. The better, or, or actually, The Benefits of Being Content. And what we find here in our text, there are four specific benefits that Paul mentions um, as a result of being content. So if you're taking notes, the first benefit that you will find in our text today is that contentment makes godliness greater. Contentment makes godliness greater. Look at verse 6 there. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul, again, picking up the words of godliness and, and gain from verse 5 and explaining that godliness itself is the gain we seek, but it is made greater when accompanied with contentment. Jesus illustrated this super clear in his conversation with the rich and ruler. Remember that? The issue wasn't godliness. This guy was godly, but, but he had an issue with, with contentment. Look at verse, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 23. He said, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one good who, there's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What do I still lack? He still knows something's off. Jesus hasn't died and gone to the, the gospel hasn't been presented yet. Jesus is in process of becoming the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He's still going to the temple, doing all the things that they would do under the old covenant. And this man is coming to him from the old covenant. And he's saying, how do I get saved? How do I do it? I don't feel like I'm saved. I've done all these things. I've kept the, the commandments and all these things. What? But there's a lack in me. What still do I lack? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. The rich young ruler was godly. He was following the commandments. He, but he lacked one thing. His heart was ruled by possessions. He had a different God. His God was money. And, and Jesus so accurately pointed it out to him your issue is possession. Just go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. That will settle the issue. And what happened? He went away sorrowful. It will cost you something to follow Jesus. And whatever that God is, you have to lay it down. He can only be the, 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 the one and true God in your life. And so he tells him that, and the guy goes away. 
The, the, the false, the, the, the point Jesus is getting to is godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, if you are, if you are a person who has great things and has lots of material things and, and the Lord calls you to lay them down and you're not willing to do that, then you have to ask yourself, is he my Lord? Is he really my Lord? It's not about perfection, but it is about it is about who is ruling your life ultimately. And you have to ask yourself, is there anything I would be not willing to give up for Jesus? That would be your God. And you want to lay those things down. Paul is saying that that's the issue here in Ephesus that these teachers are teaching, that their, their God is money. They long to be uh, financially wealthy. That's their goal. Their goal is not godliness, but they're using godliness for great gain. Paul turns it around and says, actually, if you really want great gain, be content. That will make you more godly. That's what he's telling him. And uh, um, the goal, the goal that Paul is pointing to is, is uh, godliness, and it will help, it will give great gain. If you're not content with what you have now, you won't be content later, and that will become your lifelong pursuit to get stuff. However, you, if you're content now, you'll stay on mission for Christ. You'll see the benefit of contentment and how it will make you godlier. We want to be godlier, right? Isn't that our goal? Then we have to be content because contentment outside, you, you, if you're not content, you will not be as godly as you ought. Now, there's plenty of people that are godly that are not content. And Paul is saying, if you want to be godlier, be content. And you'll see that godly, that, that contentment will make godliness greater in your life. That's the first benefit of, uh, that Paul mentions here in our text. That contentment will make godliness greater. Secondly, the, the, uh, the benefit that we see here is that contentment is to keep us focused on eternity. He goes on here in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing can't take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. The second benefit of contentment is it reminds us that everything in this life is temporary. Everything in this life is temporary and that we should focus on what is eternal. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, whether neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if we store up our treasures on on earth, all that we will work for will come to nothing because it's temporary. So if your focus is, is on the horizontal and you're not feeding into, and that, that's the end for you, the end is not eternity, but it's what I can get in this world, all of that stuff's going to go away one day. You, you brought nothing into the world, you can take nothing out of the world. When's the last time you saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul? Never. Why? Because you can take nothing out of this world. And you know, it's funny, but, but there were many, uh, many different, uh, 
you know, false religions that would teach that you could take your stuff from here to eternity. The pharaohs, they were buried with all kinds of treasures. They thought that whatever they put in their tomb would translate into eternity. If anybody's ever been to China and you see the, um, you go and see the terracotta soldiers, the, the, the emperor in China at the time, when he died, he had all of these soldiers ter- made out of, ter- uh, you know, the clay, and he put thousands of them in his tomb thinking that when he woke up into eternity, he would have an incredible army to follow him into eternity. That theology actually existed. And I think it might even exist today. At least people kind of live their life like that. Like, oh, I'm, like these things are going to be around forever. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 that it is a miserable man who works and toils for himself and yet somebody else gets to enjoy it. That's what he said. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. So the bumper sticker is true then that he who dies with the most toys still dies. Wins? Wins? Are you in? What? Man, okay. We're going to pray for all you people that said that. He who dies with the most toys still dies. You don't win. You don't win because you have a lot of stuff. And in fact, that, that the evidence of what you have, I'm not going to say it's not a full litmus test because God has blessed many people. But, but listen, if you know, the, the amount of toys that you have at the end suggests what you spent your life on. It suggests on how, what, what you were pursuing in your life, what you really found value in. The only thing that will transition from this life to eternity is what you've done for Christ. I love C.T. Studd. I'm going to talk about him later here in the, our sermon. But C.T. Studd said that only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We should quote that to ourselves every morning when we wake up. Only one life will will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's the truth. That's what Jesus was saying. Store up your treasures in heaven. That means we have to live with eternity in mind all the time. And contentment will help us keep an eternal mindset. If we just trust God and we believe that he is the giver of all resources and that we don't have to make our own way, that he has a plan and a purpose for our life, and if we'll follow him through that, that he will take care of all that we need. Boy, that sounds like you're just saying, hey, be super lazy. I don't know about you, but anybody who's really following Jesus is not lazy. Anybody who's truly following the footprints of Jesus is a workman who need not be ashamed. Somebody who is putting their hand to the plow, not looking back. Somebody who is focused, laser focused on the mission. You're following Jesus. You're on his path. You're not sitting around doing nothing. You're waiting on the Lord. You're trusting the Lord. um, And you're moving when he tells you to move. I love reading stories about men of God who have walked away from big money to pursue Christ deeper and um, to serve him with Serving by faith. I love reading those accounts. And as I was studying for this, the, 
the account of Jim Elliott came to my mind. You know, here, here this missionary man to the Akua Indians. He, he graduated top of his class in Wheaton College. He could have went on to do whatever he wanted to do. He was a super brilliant guy. He could have, he could have made a, a gazillion dollars in a lot of different ways, but his, but his heart was captured by Jesus. And he lived his life for the Lord. Like everything that he did was intentional about how can I get the gospel to people, to specifically as a missionary, how can I get the gospel to this tribe that has never heard of it? They're the most violent tribe in the rainforest, and I want to be the one to go tell them about Jesus. Good luck with that. We'll see you. That was his call in his life. And he spent his life learning language and all these different things so that he could stay on mission for Christ. He, could, he didn't get wrapped up in the things of the world. And in his journal, it was written in, in one specific area where he was talking about this idea, the value of contentment. He was talking about what am I living my life for? And he was quoting really the 17th century uh, preacher um, but, but, but he wrote these words, and you, you know what they are. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're not a fool if you pursue Jesus, if you keep your mind on eternal things. That is not foolish. That is, that is, that is smart, actually, because you're storing up your treasures in the place that is eternal, not in a place that's temporal. Jim Elliot understood that I could get a lot of stuff here, but I can't take it with me. But if I pursue eternal things, no one can take them from me. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What am I living for? What is my pursuit in life? Am I focused on eternity? If you are not content, you will not be. If you don't learn how to be content in every circumstance and situation, you will not have an eternal mindset. Contentment is required in order to keep your mind and your heart laser focused on the mission. It's a requirement to be content. That's why Paul goes on to say in this verse, if we have food and clothing, we have enough. If we have food and clothing, we have what we need. Be content with that. Listen, some, somebody needs to hear today that it's not totally normal Christian behavior to desire after the finer things in life. That's not like normal Christianity. Normal Christianity is to say, God, I'm happy with whatever you give me, and whatever you give me, I count a blessing. But it's not, God, I need more. God, you're not doing enough for me. That is not biblical Christianity. That is 21st century watered-down gospel Christianity, which is not true. It's not true at all. And you know what? I think that uh, when we, we start to preach these kinds of messages and it convicts the heart because all of us 
have, we have to make a living, we have to do those things, and we'll talk about that in a minute, what, how to do that and make sure we don't get sucked into the world. We all have to do those things, but we, we, we also have a greater calling in our life, and that is first to know Christ and then to make him known. That is, that is ultimately like if, if you had to keep one thing in mind every day and your brain could not handle more than that, you just got to cling on to that because that's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. You know, and if you're doing that, God will take care of everything else. He'll help you be focused on the right things. He'll put you in the right places. He'll give you the right job. He'll put you around the right people. He will do all those things. But he doesn't promise you that you're going to make a million dollars doing it. You know, but I'll tell you this, what I've found, and I think it's a biblical principle, is that when I'm faithful with little, he gives me more. Anybody else with you? That's a biblical principle. When I'm faithful with what he's given me, he will give me more. But my contentment is, isn't in the more. My contentment is where he has me in the beginning. And, and even, if I, even if I get blessed even beyond what I could even fathom, that's not... That's not where my contentment lies. My contentment lies with, Lord, if you were to take everything from me today, I would still love you and serve you. Many people would walk away from the Lord. That's a telltale sign, you know, what we're living for. You lose everything. Well, what good is God then? Oh, really? Is that, that, that tells the heart of a man. What good is God if he hasn't given me, uh, you know, taken all, all these things from me? Maybe he's trying to show you something. It's not normal Christianity to, to love the world. That isn't Christianity at all. It's not, it's not Christianity to want um, all of these things because everybody else has them. That's not in the Bible. God says, you worry about you. You be content with what you have. And if you just focus on you, man, uh, you know, we're, some of us are incredibly good about um, focusing on what everybody else is doing. But if we just focus on ourselves and do what Jesus tells us to do, you will be blessed. It's kind of a mandate in Scripture. Is God's, you know, you see people being faithful and God blessing. God, people being faithful and God blessing. But we're not doing it because we want to get blessed. We're doing it because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's why we do it. Paul's saying, dude, if you have food and clothing, you have enough. What are you crying about? What are you, what are you worried about? Why, why are you, um, why, Jesus said that as well in Matthew chapter 6. He said, God knows what you need. He knows what the sparrows need. He knows what the, the, the lilies of the field need. He knows exactly what you need, and he gives you what you need. But, but notice what Jesus ends with in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But here's, here's the thing. All of that, you know, you don't even have to focus on that. Don't worry about that, he said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying all these things. He's saying all the things that you need, your food, your clothing, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, what you're going to eat. You will not have to worry about those things if you seek first the kingdom of God. You just do what you're supposed to do and you let God do what he does. My God shall supply your every need. If you have food, if you have clothing, you have enough. Let me ask you this question. Who is the giver of all that we possess? The Lord. If the Lord is the giver of all that we possess, and that means that he's given us exactly what we have, right? 
So if, we, if God has given us exactly what we have, then that means it's exactly what we need, right? And if it's exactly what we need that God has given us, then we shouldn't long for more because he knows what you struggle with. Sometimes, actually, being financially blessed becomes the incredible curse of your life. And God knows, you know, he knows our bent. He knows what we struggle with. He knows all of those things. And, and so he says, I'm not going to put you in a, a bad spot. Why would, I, why would I put you in a bad spot in an area that I know that you struggle with? That would be like handing an alcoholic a can of beer. Go, here, dude, you can handle it. Is God ever going to do that? No. And in fact, he tells us not to do that. He tells us to be very careful about not doing that. The same holds true with finances. You know, God knows what you need, and he knows exactly. Now, listen, we can be incredibly poor stewards of what God's given us. And we can live outside of where we're supposed to be and get ourselves in a lot of trouble. That's not God's fault. It's not because God isn't providing. It's because we're not settled with being content with what he's given us, and we want more. And that's the, that's the true issue of the thing. We need to be good stewards of what he's given us. We need to be faithful with those things. And uh, we need to be content with whatever it is that he, whatever level he's given us. Because um, that contentment will help us focus on the most important thing in our life, which is, uh, you know, building the kingdom of God. Because what we do for that ends up translating into eternity. You'll be credited to your account one day. You know, your, your 401k is great. Might get you by when you're 70 years old. We, we can live till you're 78 or something. Is that the average age of what people live? And women probably live a little bit longer. They're, not as, they're a little smarter than the guys, so they live a little bit longer. But, um, but what are you going to do? Focus on that? Why don't you focus on the 401k of heaven? Because that translates into eternity. Keep an eternal focus. Contentment will help us do that. Uh, he goes on here, thirdly, to tell us that contentment will keep us from sinful entrapments. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You guys have heard it said before, right, that um, I would do anything for that amount of money, right? You ever heard that before? I would do anything. I would give my right arm for that much money. I would do whatever I had to do for that amount of money. And I don't doubt that with certain people that they would do literally anything to become rich. The desire to become rich, Paul says, is a snare. Literally, it's a baited trap that once captures you, will hold you hostage. It will, it will hold you down. Paul says to be rich he says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. That word fall is in the present tense, meaning it's, it's a continual following into temptation. It's a falling into it. It's, it's something that you will continue to do. You're ensnared by desires for riches. And that will end up being to your demise is what he's saying here. Now, the only person that can save you from that downward spiral is Christ. But he can save you. He's faithful to set you free if you're ensnared with anything. But notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, you know, 
those, we are caught up so easily entangled, the Bible says, so easily ensnared. It's easy for us to get ensnared like that, but it's also easy for us to get out of it if we go to Christ. Because if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. This idea that Paul is talking about, though, is this, this desire um, it doesn't, is not going away. It's not changing. And so that person is in a continual state of falling. And they'll fall deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until they fall into ruin and destruction. That's the desire that he's talking about here. You, the desire for riches will suck you in and put you on a pursuit to feed your greed. It's exactly what it will do. And there's no telling what people will do to obtain it. Paul goes on, people fall into many, into many senseless and harmful desires as a result of desiring to be rich. You've no doubt heard about accounts of money-hungry people that have literally killed their own family members for insurance you know, um, policies and things like that. The desire for riches is vicious and unsatiable. And it will continue to push you to all kinds of immorality to obtain it. It's by your desire that this happens. In fact, all sin starts with desire. That's what James said in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, for he himself tempts no one. Listen, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Isn't that what Paul's saying? Desire receives desire. He has, you have a desire. It bursts forth sin in your life, which leads to ruin and destruction. It leads to Death. Sin starts with desire, and that desire pushes us to walk out sinfulness, and the end result of sin is death. Desire literally, Paul says it like this, plunges people to ruin and destruction, as he put it at the end of verse 9 there. The word plunge means to sink, submerge, sink to the bottom. The desire to be rich will plunge believer and unbeliever alike to ruin and destruction. That's why we must guard our desires. Isn't that what Proverbs 4.23 is all about, right? Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow uh, the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence. Keep your heart free from evil desires. So it's really important then what comes in us because what comes in us takes root and it produces something that comes out of us, which is sin. And ultimately, it will lead to ruin and destruction. How can we guard our hearts in this manner? How can you guard your heart and specifically in this area? By being content, right? By by just simply doing what the Bible says. I'm going to just be content with where the Lord has me. It will keep us from sinful entrapments that lead into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction.
Fourthly, contentment will keep us from unnecessary pain. A lot of people, a lot of people have, a, have unnecessary pain in their lives as a result of their own doing. And that's what Paul is saying. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 10 is a famous verse, one of those uh, famous for being misquoted kind of verses, you know, and and people will quote it like, you know, well, you all know, like, money is the root of all evil. That's how people quote it. That's not what it says. It's not saying money itself is the root of all kinds of evil. The verse says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that is evil, not money itself. Money is an inanimate, inanimate object. It's amoral. It's neither good or bad. It's, it's neutral in and of itself. People, though, use money for good and bad, but money itself is completely subject to the one who holds it. But in and itself, it's not good or bad. When it comes to the love of money, there's no one that I can think of who loves money better than Mr. Krabs. Who is Mr. Krabs? You know him from SpongeBob SquarePants. He, this, the downfall of Mr. Krabs is his love for money. His entire life is wrapped around money. I like money. That's all he cares about. Mr. Krabs is uh, he's a citizen of Bikini Bottom and he lives for money. If you need a little teaching on what it looks like to love money. You just watch Spongebob. It will show you exactly what that looks like. Sadly, that illustrates the true existence of many people in our world today. The love of money has captured more human hearts than any other sin, I I dare to say, because we live in a world that revolves around money. Everything we do requires money. We need money to live. But understand, the love of money will cause unnecessary pain in your life. There's a cost that is involved with loving money. You know the old folklore uh, of King Midas, right? King Midas, the king, and he was granted a wish that he could wish whatever he wanted, and he wishes that anything he touched would turn to gold. He has a problem. He loves money. He also has an incredible love for his daughter. And uh, the day that he wishes that, that he would, everything he touched would turn to gold, uh, after that happens, he's touching stuff, he's running around his house and there, the palace and touching things, going, whoa, look at this, it works. Everything I touch turns to gold. And, he's, and, and, and he goes, and he goes out to find his daughter who he loves so much. His daughter loves to pick Flowers, and she's out in the garden picking flowers, and she sees her dad, and she runs, Daddy! And she leaps into his hands only for her to touch him and turn into gold dust before his eyes. According to Aristotle, legend held that Midas died of starvation as a result of his vain prayer for the gold touch. What a tragedy. It's not true, by the way. I know some of you guys are like, whoa, how do you get that wish? I kind of wish, I wish I could get that wish. You might think it's not real, but it is real. The desire, the same idea people have. I promise you the love of money will cost you all kinds 
of unnecessary pain. Many have lost relationships with their spouses and their children over the love of money. Paul makes mention here that some have even wandered away from the faith because they love money so much. I think Demas is one of those people that was mentioned as loving the world. So he walked away, departed from the faith. Whoever these people are that Paul has in mind when he says that, they gave up what they could not lose for what they could not keep. Now we sit here today and we think like, how silly is that? But, it, but we're one step away from doing that. We're one step away. That's why we have to be guarded in this specific area. Listen, I've seen people do it from time to time. As a pastor, you know, I get to know people and I see their lives. And, and it's, it's so, like for me, when, I, when somebody comes to me and says, man, I, I want to pray. Um, my job has given me an opportunity to take this promotion. And I'm always like, um, you know what? You, you should really seek the Lord on that promotion. You know, but, but man, it's going to be a lot more money. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, but what's the requirements? What, what, what's the requirement? They're not just giving you more money. What's the, what's the requirement of that? You know, oh, well, I, you know, I, I'm going to have to work a little bit more, travel a little bit more and all that. Okay, well, well, you might want to find out those details because that's how I would kind of make my decision. But dude, it's a lot more money. I mean, you don't understand what we could do and all these kinds of things. And I say, well, maybe it's the Lord. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's the devil. Maybe it's a distraction. You better pray about it. You better make sure that it's the Lord that is offering you this thing. You be careful about that because, and, and what I've seen, you know, a, a, a ton of times is that job takes them away. Next thing you know, you never see. I'm, there's people I've never seen for years and years and years because they got a promotion at a job and I, and, I, and I know for a fact they're not walking with the Lord. Now, was that God? I mean, probably not. It could have been, and maybe they just got distracted. I'm not saying that. But, but that's why it's so important that we consider these things. And we, if God is the Lord of your life, you should be asking him what he wants in every circumstance and situation, whatever you face. You ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want from me? We're not here to make as much money as we can. That's not why we exist. Yes, we need money to live, and we need, you know, there's pl plenty of biblical principles about the idea of us you know, making money so that we can support our families and all these kinds of things, but we're not here to make as much money as we can. We're here to first enter into a personal relationship with Jesus and then to make disciples. That's why we exist. Your job is a means of provision that the Lord has given you and your ministry. It's your ministry as well. Money is part of life. It's, again, it's biblical to, do, to make money and all these kinds of things. But again, why are we making money? So we can get stuff? No, it's actually so that we can provide for our families and so that we can do kingdom work. That's why we work for money. We're working so that we can... Uh, support the kingdom of God so that we can support our families. And, um, you know, again, money is not evil if it's used correctly. The love of money is evil. We, we're not to be controlled by money. And if we are, it will most certainly create 
all kinds of unnecessary pain in our life. We must keep our desires under control relating to money and understanding the purpose and why we've been entrusted with what we've been entrusted with. It's for kingdom work. It's for kingdom work. I told you I was going to tell you I'm going to end with the story of C.T. Studd whose heart was stirred uh, for evangelism and missions work after he heard D.L. Moody preach in 1833. Two years later, he sailed to China to join uh, Hudson Taylor. Again, he took on the same garb, dressed dressed just like a Chinaman, just like Hudson Taylor did. C.T. Studd turned 25 when he was in China, and at 25, his dad had passed away and left him a large inheritance. So at 25 years of age, while he was in China, he got a letter saying, your inheritance is now uh, yours. You can do what you want with it. It was a huge sum of money, huge sum of money. C.T. Studd, after um, reading the Bible and praying, felt compelled and convinced that he should give his fortune away to show the world that he relied not on money but on the living God. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. This is an eternal mindset. This is somebody who understands why they have resources. He wrote several large checks to George Mueller, for his orphanage work, then to D.L. Moody for the establishment of Moody Bible Institute, and, and he wrote a lot of other smaller checks to people to help who were helping feed the poor. He gave the remainder of his wealth to his newly wed wife as a wedding gift. She, desiring not to be outdone by her husband, gave all of her money to William Booth to support his efforts in the Salvation Army. You know every one of those names, don't you? C.T. Studd was a funder of all of those ministries. How much eternal treasure does that guy have? We're called to use our resources for the Lord. And I'm not saying that you need to, um, you know, write your, you know, drain your bank account today. You know, God, you don't love God if you don't. That's, that's health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The only one getting rich is me. But that's not what, that's not what I'm saying. But if he asked you to, you better be willing to. That's what it means to follow Christ. If he asks you to, you're willing to do it because you're content in him. Not in content in how much money you have. Not, not content in anything else other than him. William uh, C.T. Studd goes on to say, How could I spend the best years of my life in living for the honors of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? He understood the mission. He had a heart for lost people. He knew why God had given him resources, and he did what the Lord um, told him to do. That is what we're called to do. We're to use the money that we've been entrusted for, for eternal things. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I just pray, my prayer is for all of us and as, as I've been working through this that God would free any of us from the temptation and the desire to be rich because it's so easy in our culture to desire that. But I'm telling you that possessions will never satisfy. You get the iPhone 12 today 
and the iPhone 13 comes out next, the next day and you're like, oh man, I need that one. But you just got the iPhone 12. I was just telling somebody, you know, be careful in this season, by the way. You want to breed discontentment in your kids? Just buy them a whole bunch of stuff. Stick the presents under their tree and watch them rip them off. Rip the, the presents off and pass it to the next one. They're like, where's the next one at? I don't even care about that one. Where's the next one? I'm not content with one. And, and man, this is so, I'm so passionate about this because I saw this happen in my own house. I'm trying to bless the socks off my kids, but actually what I'm doing is creating sin in their heart. Telling them that they should live for stuff. Dad, I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. I continue to hear that. They're not content. And they won't be content because possessions can't make you content. Only Christ can be content. What can make you happier than you are right now? What can make you happier than you are right now? Only contentment can truly make you happier. If you commit yourself to contentment, you'll be You'll become godlier. You will keep an eternal focus. You will avoid sinful entrapments and unnecessary pain. That's what God wants for you. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning and uh, just for this, this message on contentment, Lord. And we pray that you would strike the heart of every person here that needs to hear these things, Lord. We ask you, Father, for our own hearts right now, that if there's any, any level of discontentment in our hearts, Lord, about what you've provided for us, that you right now convict us and allow us the opportunity to, to repent of those things. You have given us more than enough, God. And maybe some of us are here today and, and we're living in a situation where we have made some bad choices and we're in a bad spot financially. Lord, give wisdom to that person. Help them to be able to recover from that. But Lord, bring contentment. Bring contentment. We know that money is fleeting, Lord. And uh, we don't want to focus our whole lives on pursuing it and missing out on the bigger picture of eternity. Help us to store our treasures up in heaven, Lord. To use our resources to bring honor and glory to you, Lord. We desire so much, Lord, for, for your Holy Spirit to direct us now. And so we thank you for what you're doing here today, Lord. And we ask you to continue to move as we close in this song in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.